Listen, Paul doesn't allow, the word of God does not allow us to escape this, this portion right here. We can't wiggle through this. We can't, you don't know my past. You don't know this. God says, if it's not done in here, in this framework, within marriage, it is this, sexual immorality. But we're not doing that. We're not doing this. We're just doing this. Sexual immorality. But I'm just sending pictures. I'm just posting this. I'm just doing that. Sexual immorality. What am I supposed to do then with all this sexuality that's within me? What am I supposed to do with it? Steward it. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Corinthians chapter 5. And we definitely need to pray before we start this chapter. All right? Let us pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for a time where we can worship you, fix our eyes upon you, God. You're so good uh, to always meet with us. And Lord, we're so thankful for the cross that has given us access into the very presence of Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that you would minister to us by your spirit. Lord, we pray that everything that is said um, is seasoned with grace and with love. Lord, that we wouldn't allow this letter to become super distant from us or meant from someone else, but God, that we would take it to heart. We would allow your word to do uh, exactly what you would desire it to do in our heart. And Lord, we thank you that your word is designed to change us because you love us. And so, Lord, we want to take that into consideration as we hear um, this exhortation tonight. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, our theme for this study will be, it's called Together. And the reason we're calling that is the letter to the church in Corinth was the Apostle Paul's attempt to make this church see that together, God wants to use them to influence their city um, and to be a witness of Jesus Christ there in Corinth, and that everyone is a participant in that work. And so um, we're all in this together as the church, as the body of Christ, that God has a plan and a purpose for us in the place that God has planted us and placed us, and God wants to use us. But in order for God to use us, there must be um, some things dealt with. In order to, for God to use the church in Corinth to its full capacity, there were some issues and some things that were going on in that church. And so this letter is a corrective letter. Now, I don't know about you, but correction doesn't always feel like a positive thing, but it is. However, it isn't something that any of us really welcome either, where we're like, hey, correct me if I'm wrong. That, that's a rare statement that I make, uh, where I'm like, I'm not wrong, so don't worry about it. You don't have to correct me. I don't think anyone ever really likes being corrected. There's always that awkwardness when, has that ever happened to you? You're walking the wrong direction? And someone's like, hey, hey, that's actually, you can't go that way. And you're like, oh, oh, um, oh, man. I, so uh, it's embarrassing, right? Correction can feel awkward and embarrassing. Now, no one likes to be corrected, especially when it comes to this next correction that Paul brings before the church. Uh, last week, we studied the issue of pride and what it is and why we should care about it and to be on guard against it. But this issue that he brings up here is the issue of sexual immorality, uh, sexual sin. But it's not just a correction of this sin, but also instruction on how to confront a brother or sister in Christ who's dealing with this kind of sin or a sin of entrapment or someone who falls into sin. What is our responsibility? And remember, we are in this together, obviously, like we said, and if your brother or sister in Christ is caught up in sin, what responsibility do we have as the body of Christ or what should we do? And I want to preface this by saying this. We love you so much at this church. Uh, and we're so, I don't have a mouse in my pocket or anything, but the church in general, we, when I say we, the, the church loves the fact that you guys are a part of this church. And, and when we begin, okay, when we begin this part of the study, I want you to know something. That what is said is meant in love. And I want you to understand as well that my intention is to season it with grace. It may come off the opposite, but I want you to know that like the Apostle Paul, correction is not always easy, but it is meant and intended, and it comes from a place of love. 
If you're going the wrong way, hopefully someone who loves you enough to tell you to go the right way, right? You'd appreciate that. So, so I want to just preface what's about to go on tonight with that preface. We love you. God loves you. Uh, I love you. I don't know you that well, but we do. And, and I just want you to know, because this is not something that is easy to talk about. It's not like I woke up this morning like, I can't wait to talk about this. It's going to be awesome. It's my favorite thing to discuss. Um, but here we are as we go through scripture. The Bible does talk about sexuality. It does talk, talk about sin. And so what we're going to look at tonight is what is sexual immorality? And then what's up with sexuality? Ready? All right. You can tell by all your expressions, you're excited. So am I. Okay, so... Verse 1, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such, <laughs> such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body and present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present um, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. See what I mean? This is a difficult passage. This is a lot of stuff that Paul just said. But we first want to talk about, we want to answer that question, what's up with sexuality? Because we live in a a world, I don't want to even say culture, we live in a world that is hyper-sexual. That everything that we are sold oftentimes has a sexual bent towards it. You've heard the saying that sex sells. And so what that entails is that there is a side of our brain and there's a side of us uh, that has um, been bent towards sin that people use and market off of in order to sell you stuff. Pretty crazy. But human sexuality, including all of its physical, emotional, and spiritual intricacies, was God's invention. He gave sexuality to his human creation as a gift. But the very first command in the Bible is, after all, to be fruitful and multiply. It's like the first thing that God told Adam and Eve to do. It says, be fruitful, multiply. I want you to uh, cultivate your marriage, cultivate this relationship, and I want you to make a lot of babies. And everyone said, hallelujah, like, thank God. That's a great command from the Lord. But since I can remember myself, I only heard sex discussed in church in the negative tone. But the Bible starts out in a positive, doesn't it? Because within creation, God had made sex for mankind and actually made mankind with sexuality. It's a part of who we are. But since I can remember in church, I remember as a kid, it was, you know, don't look at pornography, don't sleep around, don't think about it, don't talk about it, don't, you know, think about thinking about it, don't, 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 don't. That's all you're told from like a little kid, like don't, don't. You're like, why? Because it's bad. So then what happens as you grow up and you have, sen you have sexuality as a human being, it's designed and put into us. When you're told constantly not to think about it or go near it, it's evil, you're, you're constantly wondering, what am I to do with this part of me? Something that's placed into me. I, I can't help but it, I'm trying to kill it, I'm trying to destroy it, but there is this sensuality or this sexuality that is built into us. It's part of our humanity. But as God created it, Satan quickly perverts it. And that's the issue at hand. That sexuality, it has a designated context. And we're going to talk about what that designated context is. But whatever God creates, Satan perverts. And it did not take long for our fallen humanity to distort and destroy God's sacred gift of sexuality. And now when it comes to sexuality, the devil loves to swing us to either side of the extreme pendulum. Right? He likes to either drive us toward hypertension or towards sleep in that way. And I want to give you two kind of two sides to this. Either sexuality defines us, right? Here's one side. 
one side of the, of the pendulum. Either sexuality defines us. It becomes the driving and motivating force in my life. It defines us or defines me as a person. It then shapes my worldview because it now has become what I worship and it becomes a really big deal, right? It becomes who I am. I, I make all of my decisions. I find my identity in my sexuality, which is a cheap substitute for who we really are in Christ Jesus, isn't it? Then he'll swing us to the other side of the pendulum. And on the other hand, we have the other camp that sees sexuality as no big deal. It has no limitations. It's simply a drive to be satisfied and has no real effect on a person or their soul. Sexuality is simply a desire and it really doesn't matter. Whatever makes you happy in the moment, in place, whoever you're with. And sexuality is then divorced from soul and spirit, but is simply the body that's involved. And we know that to be not true as well. Because the Bible tells us before we ever fall in love with someone's body, we fall in love with them, spirit and soul, who they really are. Let's be honest. A significant percentage of the world's problems stem directly or indirectly from our abuse of God's gift of sexuality. Imagine the world that we have if every human being followed God's standard of sexuality. Abortions, divorce, STDs, AIDS, pornography, sex trafficking, fatherless children, single mothers, rape, abandoned babies, and pedophilia would all cease to be great or be greatly reduced. And the ripple effect of those changes alone would completely transform every continent, every nation, and every culture. So listen, sexuality is a big deal. God gave it to us, it's part of our humanity, but it has been twisted and perverted by sin. So what does it look like to be a Christian and have sexuality? Because we still have that. Christ, we've said it before a million times, he is the redeemer of all things. What sin had bent and twisted and perverted, Christ dying upon the cross redeems all things back to himself to make it pure as God intended. And because of those, what I just read to you, those significant changes and all of that perversion and things that have happened because of that, that's why God in his goodness has given us boundaries around sex. It's a wonderful boundary called marriage. And you think about it this way, okay? Um, how many of you have a fireplace in your house? Oh, okay. In California, for some reason, we have them by the beach. It's hot all the time, but we have no air conditionings um, in San Clemente, where I live. I have three fireplaces. None of them are used. We have no air conditioning. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. They're like, anyway, enough about me. Let's talk about you. So think about it. If you have a fireplace, how wonderful that is. Those of you that were like, it's fall. I can finally wear a sweater. PSL is in full swing and all of that. And, and like, fine, I just want to sit by a fire and read a book. Ah. No one ever says, I want to sit by a wildfire and read a book. Dude, Rob does. <laughs> it's an occupational hazard. No one ever wants, like that's when fire was, is within that framework of a fireplace. It warms you. It gives light to the house. It's, it's enjoyed. It's, it's perfect, right? All of us have said, this is just perfect. As you sit, whatever. This is perfect. This is all I want to do. The minute that fire gets out of the fireplace, you have chaos, don't you? The minute that it begins to, to spread outside of that, getting it back in or containing it is really difficult. And so the Bible has given us a framework in which sex is to be used and sexuality is to be used. And because it's powerful, it comes with an instruction manual. If you've ever read Song of Solomon, I, I, you know, when you get married, read it. But, but there's a, a part of it where he, this woman is talking and she says, she says to her friends, like, friends, do not awaken love before it is time. Do not do it. Because she says at one point, I'm lovesick. Like I need carbs and I need like soda pop right now to just like calm me down because I'm so in love and I want to give myself to this guy so bad, but we're not married yet. And so I need your help. Restrain me, she says. Why? Because love is powerful. 
Love is a powerful thing. Sex is a powerful thing. It's like a chainsaw. If you own a chainsaw, if you buy like a chainsaw, it comes with instructions, very detailed instructions, like how to shut it off, <laughs> you know, how to not cut your leg off. Like those are all really important things. Sex has a sexual manual that comes with it, which is the word of God. Within the framework of God's uh, parameter of marriage, God says it is blessed. It is given to you as a gift. Go outside of that and you will see your life be consumed by it. We live in a world that is consumed, driven, marketed to by sexuality. It's insane. God's parameter for sex is within marriage. Paul says, done. Like there's nothing else that needs to be said. This is the parameter. This is the framework. And if it's in that framework, it is blessed. And God says, you're welcome. Sexuality is not to drive us, but like so many other things in our lives, we are to steward sexuality. I think sometimes we wish, like God just zap me, like take this away until I get married. And God says, that's not how it works. I've given you my spirit. One of the giftings of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. Self-control. We are to steward sexuality as Christians. Now, this is where people love to get technical, right? Well, technically, we aren't, and you fill in the blank. Like, technically, we aren't doing the real thing. We're just doing other stuff. So, like, what does the Bible have to say about this or that or whatever, this is where we love to get technical. I loved, to, I loved when I was younger to get technical. Like, we're not doing the bad stuff. We're just kind of like doing the fun stuff. Okay, well, what does the Bible say about all the technicalities? What does the Bible have to say about all these different technicalities? Well, there's a word. Did you notice that word in verse 1? It's the word sexual immorality. It's the word sexual immorality. The Bible says a lot about this one word and uses this word often or this phrase. First Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Galatians 5.19 It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. So this is a work of the flesh. This is something that the flesh does. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly or fleshly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Huh. That may be a new concept for us, for some of us. That sexual sin or sexual morality is actually a form of idolatry in our life. But what does that exactly mean? We're talking about technicalities here. What does it exactly mean, sexual morality? What does that word mean? The Greek word for this is the word, or transliteration of it, is the word porneia. It's where we get our word for pornography. Um, this phrase covers every sexual act that is outside the boundary of marriage. So instead of Paul sitting down for hours and months going through every single person's question about every sexual act, Paul draws a circle around marriage and says, if it's not done in here, then it is sexual immorality. Very simply, if it's not done within the confines of God's framework, then it is sexual immorality. Any questions? Very simply, Look, listen, I wish someone would have told me this when I was younger. I had no idea. Because I, dude, how many of you love loopholes? Anyone like loopholes? I love loopholes. I love to find holes in the problem or a way to get out of it. Like, well, I'm not that, so it doesn't talk to me. Listen, Paul doesn't allow, the word of God does not allow us to escape this, this portion right here. We can't wiggle through this. We can't, you don't know my past. You don't know this. God says, if it's not done in here, in this framework, within marriage, it is this, sexual immorality. But we're not doing that. We're not doing this. We're just doing this. Sexual immorality. But I'm just sending pictures. I'm just posting this. I'm just doing that. Sexual immorality. 
What am I supposed to do then with all this sexuality that's within me? What am I supposed to do with it? Steward it. Steward it and keep it for the one that God gives you. And that's where it's to be used. And listen, I want you to understand something. If you have failed in that area, I want you to know that you are in company of the chief of sinners. If you've fallen prey to pornography, if you've fallen prey to sexual immorality, if you've fallen with your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, you have entered into that and you're thinking, what, I don't understand, how do we go back? There is grace for you, God loves you, but understand there is consequence. There is consequence to sin. There is grace, there is mercy, there is love, there is restoration. Jesus loves you. He died for that very sin, knowing that very sin would be committed. But there is consequences to it. And so we need to be very careful. Just because it's off limits, right? Now we know the framework of it. Just because it's off limits does not make it any less desirable. In fact, it's the opposite, isn't it? You see a sign that says no trespassing. You're like, I want to go in there. What do they have in there? I bet it's good stuff. Let's go check it out. Anytime anyone tells you not to go somewhere, anyone see like a barricade or a place that says no parking, you're like, yeah, that's where I want to park. Doesn't make any sense. Just because it's off limits. Listen, just because this is off limits until you get married does not make it any less desirable. Anyone ever been on a diet and you're like, all right, no more gluten or no more sugar or no more, you know, you name it. Like no more this or no more that, no more boba, I'm going on a break or no more, the, you know, my bank account can't handle the coffee. Like I just, I need to take, what happens? All you want is that thing, right? Anyone ever fasted for like more than five minutes? Anyone? Like, you're like, all right, I'm not going to eat. And the minute you say it, you're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. I meant I'm not going to sleep or whatever. I, you change it. Like, God, uh. just because it's off limits does not make it any less desirable. Listen, it's in your framework. It, it's, it's in your DNA. But the point is, we're to steward that towards the Lord. God has given us his spirit to overcome what the Bible, or, or what the devil, what the Bible, what the devil would seek to, to take opportunity to tempt us towards sin. It is not a sin, I repeat, it is not a sin to be tempted. Do you know that? If you're tempted towards something, that does not mean that's who you are or what you are. If you're like, I have this tendency and I'm always tempted towards this, that is not who you are and that is not what you have to do. You've been given the spirit of God to say no to it. And the more that you say no, the stronger the spirit becomes and the less the flesh has control over your life, Romans tells us. And so listen, what do we do with sexuality as Christians? We steward that towards marriage. And I want to just encourage you, that we have a lot more ways to not only engage in it, but we have a lot more ways to hide it. We have a lot more shame, I think, attached to it than necessarily those, um, no, same amount of shame, I guess. But just because you fall into it does not mean that you have to stay in it. Does that make sense? Just because you've committed it in the past does not mean that you have to continue in it. And Jesus would call you out of that. And call you, just like they're about to call this guy out of it. He says here in verse one, sorry, we've only gone through one verse. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, even such sexual immorality as it is not named among the Gentiles. The phrase that he says here that, that it's actually named or um, it's heard of, it's this phrase that it is everywhere noised abroad, Paul says. This is not the gossip of a few. It is not the talk of the town. Everyone knows in the town. Like it's broadcasted everywhere. Everyone knows that this guy is engaged in a relationship with another man's wife. The, the sin here is, idol, is adultery. It just so happens to be his stepmother 
and his dad's wife that he's engaged it with. Yeah. I said last week it was his mom, but I meant stepmom. So some of you are like, I'm never coming back <laughs> ever again. Sorry, stepmother. Regardless, it's icky. The guy's committing adultery, but it's adultery with his dad's wife. And what they come in, con when Paul says that this is something that's not just spoken of like by a few, this is everyone in Corinth knows about this. And Paul wasn't taking the word of a few, but he, it was widely known to be true and it wasn't hidden, but it was elevated and actually praised in the city. In a city that was known for its gnarly sin. I mean, if you were acting in a certain way, people would call you a Corinthian. Like that's how they would define you. If you were, you were that person at Vegas and you're like, wow, Vegas, right? They would call you, sorry, they would call you a Corinthian. You're acting very Corinthian. The reputation of the city was lewd and gross and sinful. And, and Paul says here, it's so bad that even the Gentiles and the Corinthians don't do this. And this is happening in the church, he says. Which just goes to show you that church is a messy place, isn't it? It is not devoid of scandal. It's not devoid of gross sin. In fact, a lot of times this is where it takes place. Because the church is made up of sinners. Even the Gentiles, he says, don't do this kind of stuff. The world, the unbeliever, those that do not know God are looking on and going, man, that's messed up. So it goes to show you that their sin was affecting those around them. The Bible tells a story in, in the book of Joshua. Joshua went into Jericho. as this walled, fortified city. It's the first city they come to as they're battling. They're in the promised land and they're all excited. It's, it's this, this walled city that was so um, impenetrable. The walls were so thick they would have chariot races on the top of it. And if you guys remember the story, they march around it, they yell, and the walls come tumbling down. But one of the things that, that they said before going in, the Lord told Joshua in chapter seven, verse, or chop, uh, sorry, chapter six, verse 18, it says, "And you, by all means, abstain from accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord." Most of the time, when the armies would go in, it was free game. I mean, they could take livestock. They could, you know, that's a lot of times how they were paid um, through the spoils of war. But this time, God tells Israel, tells the nation of Israel, when you go in, all of that stuff goes towards the Lord. Just very plain, very simple. Do not take the spoils. Don't bring them in. Otherwise, it will affect the whole congregation, won't it? Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, it says, But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. He took a garment, silver shekels, and a wedge of gold, and he buried them in his tent. What happens next is Israel goes up against this little heap town. It's actually, the word means heap, A-I. It's just like a piled up piece of dirt, and people live there. It's this little town, and they're like, we beat Jericho. Like, do we really need to send our whole army in? I think we got this. So they send a, a, like a third of it, and when they approach the gates, they get their butts kicked. They actually run for their lives, and 36 men die, and they lose. Joshua, like, tears his clothes, and he's mourning before the Lord, and he's like, God, I don't understand. You told us to come this way. You told us you would give us victory, and here we are losing battles. Like, I don't get it. What are you doing? I didn't say that. I was paraphrasing. But like in my own, like, what's going on here? And the Lord says to him, there's sin in the camp. Someone has taken the accursed things. Listen. The church in Corinth, if it was going to have an impact on the outside, it had to deal with the issues on the inside. The sin in the camp. The devil will do everything he can to bring us down, knowing that the impact the church can have in a community that's on fire for the Lord, that says no to sin and says yes to Jesus. And the devil knows that, and so he tries to get in. And this was the reputation of Corinth, man. It was one of, of sin infiltrating the church. 
and it was one of gross sexual immorality. And the reason, because of, the reason mostly because it was of pride, the beginning of it. Verse 2, it says, And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he has done this deed, that he might be taken away from among you. He said their pride actually promoted and praised sin. And because it, Paul says, you should be weeping over it. It should break your heart because of it. And really, when we come in contact with the risen and pure holy God, that's what we, when we come in contact with that, sin should wreck us. It should cause us to weep. It should cause us to, to feel something of, of repentance in our own heart. And it's when we promote pride, like, I'm good. Like, I'm doing all the right things. And God's, well, what about this? And you're like, well, that's not a big deal. Sin in the camp? No way. Listen, poison is poison no matter how much it is. You drink a little bit of poison, you just drink poison. You should probably have your stomach pumped. No matter what it is, like, it's a big deal. Pride is something that brings in or ushers in other sins. They should be mourning over it. But the point is, is they didn't know what to do. They were all engaged in sexual immorality themselves. And so when this guy started doing this, they're like, well, we're, we don't have a foot to stand on here to tell him that he can't be doing that. We don't want to be judgy. There were those engaged in sexual immorality, but his brother, or, or their brother in Christ was in a relationship with his stepmother. Man, talk about a messed up, jacked up situation. Look at verse 6. It says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. So now Paul gives instruction. He says, I've already judged. And here comes the gavel. Like, this guy needs to be put out from the body of Christ. But bringing it back into like our, our context as a church, as the body of Christ. Perhaps you know someone who has... Taken, taken into their tent the accursed things and they're dealing with this stuff and they're involved in this stuff. What are we supposed to do? How do you deal with someone who, like Achan, has taken something that was off limits into their possession? Well, Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 18. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, if you have your Bible. Matthew 18, picking it up in verse 10. It says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see their face of my father who is in heaven. For the son of man has come to save that which was lost. Jesus came to find and to save the lost. And because of that, and because that was his mission, we cannot and should not despise anyone who is of the family of God, he says. But he goes on to illustrate this in verse 12. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So Jesus came to find that which is lost, to restore which is broken. And he gives instruction if you lose one, right, he says, if anyone has a sheep, he has a fold of sheep, and one is missing, what's he going to do? What should he do? He should go find him. Go get him. And when you find him, you're probably going to find one of these sheep on a side of a cliff about ready to jump. Because they're stupid, right? This one, that's what sheep do. And so he says, what, what should we do? We shouldn't despise anyone who's had the family of God. And we should go after those who have gone astray. Those are Jesus' words, his instructions. We're to find them, to go after them. When one is apart from the fold, he goes astray. What are we supposed to do? Go and find them. We're supposed to not to despise them. And the context is someone who's gone astray, not someone who's personally hurt you or hurt your feelings, right? We always use Matthew 18. We're like, they hurt my, faith, my feelings, and so I'm going to go confront them and tell them all the things that are wrong with them, right? <laughs> anyway, and the Bible's justifying me to like complain about you. But it's someone who's wandered from the Lord, someone who's gone astray. Jesus says, what are we supposed to do? Go and get them. Go and find them. 
And, and may you take courage tonight as, the, as part of the family of God, that you have brothers and sisters in Christ who love you enough not to judge you, but to go after you when you go astray. Because all of us, like sheep, go astray. We all have blind spots in our character where we need others to point them out. They're not being judgy. They're being loving. They're being loving. The context here is someone who's gone astray. They're partaking of something that is off limits. What are we to do? Step one, Jesus says in verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So step one, what are we supposed to do? Normally, we don't always talk to them. We talk about them, right? Did you hear what Rebecca did? <laughs> Sorry if your name's Rebecca. Did you hear what so-and-so is into? Oh, my goodness. That's not what it says. It doesn't say to go and talk about them. It says to go and talk to them. So we go and find them. And we go and talk to them. It's to bring them back privately to go to them personally. But what if they don't listen? What if they won't listen to you? Anyone ever felt that way? Like, how come no one listens to me? Should I use my powers of invisibility for good or for evil? Like, no one listens to me. I'm very wise. Just come. Like, I do counseling appointments all the time. And people are like, what do we do? And you're like, you should probably do this. And don't do that. And stop doing this. And then they come back and they're like, we don't know what to do. Did you do any of the things I told you to? No. All right. Right on. Step two, what do we do? We bring someone with us. Look what he says later on. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. So step two, bring someone with you. Go to a brother or sister and say, hey, I don't know if you know this, but our brother, our sister is wandering. They're caught up in this. We, can you come with me? Like, let's go together and we're going we're gonna to talk to them. How can we help you? How can we bear your burden with you? How can we bring you back to the Lord? What are you dealing with that we can come alongside of you and help you to deal with? But what if they still won't listen? Step three says, go and tell the church. Go and tell the church. This is not you telling on someone, like, <laughs> I told the pastor on you or whatever. Now you're really going to get it. I hate that. When parents bring their kids in and they're like, talk to the pastor, you're in trouble. And the kid's like, <laughs> what am I, hey kid, principal's office. No, I'm not the principal. I'm going to expel you from church. I can't do that. Um, well, I can't actually. But, you know, it's not like I'm going to do that. So they take it to the church. But what is the church going to do? The church is going to start praying for them. The church is going to start praying for them. They're going to start interceding for them, that God would get a hold of them, that God would reach into their life, do anything that is possible. We're going to pray, God, put Christians around them, right? We talked about it a few weeks ago. You might be the Christian that someone has prayed for in someone's life to correct them and to bring them back to the Lord or to point them to Jesus. But then step four, he says here, but if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And often we're like, that just means you cut them off. We're done here. Remember the love and grace that is supposed to be everlasting and unquenchable? Not for you. Because who did Jesus hang out with? What was Jesus' attitude towards heathens and tax collectors? He ate with them, didn't he? He spent time with them. He says to, to us, let them be like a heathen or tax collector. Jesus reached out to them. He loved them. He ate with them. He never approved of their behavior. He reached out. He wasn't participating in their lifestyle when he hung out with them. He was always pointing them to the truth. He was always pointing them to the truth. That doesn't mean you go bar hopping with them. They're like, man, I'm just here to, you know, I just want to minister to you. Woo, that's not what that's saying, right? I'm not approving of it, but I'm your designated driver just in case. You can't get home. No. Jesus reached out to them, though. We should still view them. The point of that is you should still view them as someone that Jesus loves and needs to be reached, right? So that's what we do in restoring someone back towards the Lord. And look what it says in, in, back in our text in verse 5. It says, Deliver such a one to Satan for destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Delivered to Satan. 
that's pretty intense, isn't it? It's not like Satan's kind of a big deal. <laughs> it's like the head, head Satan. I mean, it's like, this is a deliver him to one of the lower end minions. It says deliver him to the head evildoer, the father of lies, the one who got us into this mess. Satan, what does that even mean? I'm just going to tell you right now. I don't know what it means. But I do know this. Satan is the God of this world, the Bible tells us. Meaning that there's a contrary flow to the way that, that you want to live, right? And what Paul is saying, I want you guys to deliver him up to his flesh. That as he is consumed with the flesh, hopefully he will come to his right mind of the destruction of the flesh. That all that fuel would be burned up by the devil himself. What, they tell, what he's telling the church is this guy has brought a cursed thing into the body and it's living among the congregation. So what does Paul tell them to do? It's time to tell this guy that he has to go outside of the congregation. And this happens sometimes. This happens sometimes. Listen, church is a messy, messy thing. If you think being a pastor is like super fun and, and all, you know, all we do is sit around by the fire and drink coffee and really good coffee. And, and we just talk about how good theology and God and Spurgeon quotes and, you know, Tozer books that we just read. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, let me levitate over here. And, you know, because I'm in the spirit and all that stuff. Do you know that that's not how, that's not how it is? Like most of the time you're dealing with the junk of people's lives. Not to like puff us up, like that's what I, I just deal with the junk of people's lives. That's my whole day. But listen, it, it, it's so much of it is really difficult. It's super difficult because you're dealing with difficult people. It's a messy thing. As, as gracious and merciful as, as pastors and, and people in leadership try to be, sometimes you got to cut someone loose. Sometimes you have to ask someone, you need to go. But Paul tells us why. It's not just because they're ruining things, but he tells them why. Look what he says um, in verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He tells them to tell this guy, man, you can't enjoy the benefit of the family of God if you will not listen and turn from your sin to where the flesh can be burned up. And the flesh here means the desires that we have, not, you know, to not please the Lord, those desires. But it doesn't mean that physical body can be destroyed. It's not saying turn him loose to Satan so he can die, right, and be consumed in his body, but that he would learn that you can't live after the flesh and be a follower of Jesus. But he tells us why. The whole congregation is affected by it. Remember when we said we're all in this together? It's like we're connected through Christ. We're all part of the body of Jesus. It's true. Your sin does not just affect you. It affects me. My sin affects you. It's a really interesting concept. But Paul is saying here, this type of leaven, what leaven is, um, or yeast as we have it in our day, it causes dough to rise. It's bacteria of rotting dough. And as it rots, it spreads throughout the new lump or the new dough, and that's what causes it to rise. And Paul says that's what sin is like. It's rotting, festering sin that doesn't just stay in one place. It spreads and affects all. And so you have to cut it out. Why? Because if you're going to continue in that kind of lifestyle, you're going to have to do it outside of the family of God. Because it weakens the effectiveness of the church. And listen, our choices affect those around us. It does. And it's not to guilt trip us, but it's to help us to understand the gravity of the situation. But what is the remedy? Look what he says in verse 7. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. Isn't that a fun word? Lump. Purge it out. The idea is to vomit it up, to purge it out, to get rid of it, to pull it out from its root, to, to remove it. It says, purge that out, get rid of it. What should we do? Get rid of it. If it's sin that's entrapped us, if it's a cursed thing that we've taken hold of, the whole point, he says, is purge that out. Later on, we read about in 2 Corinthians, this guy, he's brought back into the family of God. This guy's restored. He's brought back in. So if you're thinking, man, what a horrible sin. This guy gets put out. I mean, I'm not confessing any sin. I'm not telling anybody about that. 
You know that Paul brings this up and tells them to do that? Why? So that later they can bring it back in. The whole purpose of this, the purging out of sin, the getting, rid of, the getting rid of it is so that there can be restoration and wholeness and being brought back into right relationship. So what do we do? What's the remedy for sexual morality and sin in this way? Man, we need to get rid of it. We need to yield to the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to confess it to the Lord. You don't have to confess it to me. You go right to Jesus and say, God, forgive me. I need your help, your power to purge it out of my life. It's not a zap type thing where you're like, there it is, it's gone. It is a daily surrendering to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And when you fall, please understand this, that if you mess up, please understand that there is grace that is available to you. Run back to the cross, get right with Jesus, pick yourself up and keep on going, looking toward the second coming of Christ. Don't stay in the muck and say, this is where I'm at. It can't be fixed. There's no help. There's no hope. This is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. That is incongruent with who God is. Right? That's not what Jesus says. There's change, there's power, there's difference. God gives us a new kind of life. And there's grace. And I want to say this. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. If you are, are reading this and you're like, man, that guy's mean. What a rude Gus. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know the vernacular of the young people these days. Rude Gus. Like, what a mean guy. Dude, Jesus loves you. He loves you enough to tell you that, man, you're stupid. <laughs> and what you're doing is stupid. And you are selling yourself short of what God would give you. You are, you are losing your identity and cheapening yourself to something that is, is so, it's not worth your time. Someone once told me that getting married for sex is like getting married for a 747 for free peanuts, or buying a 747 for free peanuts. Let me say it again. Getting married for sex is like getting married, is like buying a 747 for free peanuts. That's a whole lot of responsibility for a little bag of, uh, you know, a free thing in the boat. Do you know that marriage is a lot more than just sex? It's, it's a big responsibility. And you're like, when's that going to happen? Dude, take this time to prepare yourself for what's about to happen to your life. Like, not in a bad way. But I want to tell you something. You think that you, you don't think you're selfish now? Get married. And you will find out that you're like, I wasted so much time doing stupid, annoying, dumb, wasteful things. I should have been getting prepared because I don't know what to do, <laughs> right? Man, there's so much, I think people are waiting, like my life will start once I get married. You're missing out. Leverage your, your time right now to be preparing for what God has in store. Don't get caught up with all these, like, oh, I have all these feelings and I want to just use all this now. You, you're, you're, you're dampening or you're, you're deadening what you could give to someone else. So be careful. Listen, be careful what you post. You think like, well, it's not, it, it's not sexually perverse. It is. It is. It absolutely is. And you're, you're causing... You are causing someone else to think in a way about you and you know why you're doing it. Deep down, you know why you're doing it. It's to make yourself feel good. Do you know how selfish that is? Do you know that's the opposite of sex? Sex is not about self-fulfillment. It's about cheering on the other. It is the deepest form of love or, or the deepest form of the expression of love that God has ever given us. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with championing that person and making them feel loved and cared for. So don't make it about yourself. Keep yourself for whoever God has for you. There's nothing better than that. If you've fallen, if you've, if you've gone that way, listen, stop. Stop. 
stop right now and go the other direction. Receive the correction of God's word that says stop it and go the right way. Does that make sense? I love you guys. I hope it doesn't come off mean. But listen, God loves you enough to tell you that you're wrong. So let's pray. (laughs) Jesus, we love you. And I thank you, God, that you love us. You love us enough to correct us. Lord, I thank you for the gifts that you've given to us. But Lord, we want to be those that use them in the right way. We want to use them to glorify you. And so, Lord, we pray that if there's any, if there's an influence of the world, if we have a, a, a skewed view of sex and sexuality based on what the world has fed us for so long, God, we pray that you would redeem that. Would you change it? God, would you bring wholeness and freedom where we're bound? God, if there's people, if, if there's anyone in this room that is bound to sex, and just feel so ashamed of it. God, I pray that you would begin to free them by the, by the power of the Spirit. That you would tell them, Lord, that you'd whisper in their ear, God, that you love them and you care for them and you have more for them than just a momentary moment of, of numbing. And so, God, we pray as we sing, as we worship you, Lord, you begin to heal things that are broken. You begin to restore areas of our life, walls that are broken down, things that have crept in. God, if there are things that we've taken in, into our, our heart that do not belong there, God, would you begin to rid them out and bring them to the forefront. God, purge them from us that we might be effective for you in this world. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name.